0: We're, uh, we're coming to the end of this uh, marvelous letter, and as I mentioned last Sunday, chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians is a very chatty section, uh, as one commentator puts it. Uh, there are lots of practical statements in these closing verses that Paul is addressing to real people who lived at this time when Paul was writing in the first century, and so we're kind of eavesdropping, we're listening in on this farewell chapter, and because all of Scripture is useful for us, right, the Bible says that, all Scripture is inspired by God, God breathed, and is profitable, useful to us for correction, instruction, training, and righteousness, even these verses are useful and helpful to us And um, in the 20th century, 21st century here in Indianapolis. You know, this morning, I think in this section we've just read together, at first glance, I don't know if you noticed this while we were reading it, it appears to be like an itinerary of travel plans for Paul and his fellow ministers, verses 5 through 12. But I think if we just take a few minutes this morning, take a close look at these verses I think we can also see some other things. We can make some other observations. Paul is giving us some insights, even in these travel plans, into what he's doing, why he's doing it, and how he's doing it. And I think those are instructive to us. Now, in wrestling with these verses this week, I decided that the best course of action in uh, going at him this morning was uh, to do like we did last week and again interrogate the text. In other words, ask the questions of the text and then see how the text answers those questions for us. And I think that there are at least three questions that we can ask the text that are useful to us as Christians today. And maybe in your ABF classes you'll come up with other questions as well. But I think there's at least three questions as we also try to do the work of the Lord As Paul did. So I want to ask three questions and answer them from the text. The first is this what is the work that Paul is doing? What is the work? Second, who is doing the work? And then three, where is the work being done? And let's just see if we can answer those questions and see how the scripture may be useful to us as we study it this morning. So, first of all, what is the work? What is the work? The most important thing, I believe, to observe about this text and this work that Paul is describing is that it's the Lord's work. We see this very clearly in verse 10. Look at verse 10 again. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. Now here's the phrase. For for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Now, if that sounds a little familiar to us, that phrase, the work of the Lord, we we just covered it a couple of Sundays ago. Uh, Pastor Trey was preaching in, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 58, and remember the very last verse of chapter 15 has the phrase in it that you as Christians are to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. And now Paul brings this phrase up again, the work of the Lord. So what is the work of the Lord? I think we can get some some insights into this, um, not only from this letter, but also from other letters that Paul has written in the New Testament. One of those, I think, that really can help us clarify this is Colossians. And over in Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes in two verses there, in verse 17 and verse 23, He writes that whatever we do in word or deed, we should do it all to the glory of the Lord Jesus. And in verse 23, that when we do our work to the Lord, we should be working as for the Lord and not for men. So that that is a pretty broad statement, isn't it? In a sense, Paul is saying that whatever you do, whatever you do, Whatever work you do, whatever you say, whatever actions you take, whatever behavior you demonstrate, you have to do it for the glory of Jesus. You do it for the Lord. And so there's a sense in which all of our work, all of our actions, all of our speech is the Lord's work. When Paul talked about the Corinthians, go back to chapter 9 in 1 Corinthians, just a few pages to the left. When Paul talked about the Corinthians, he actually described them, the Corinthians, in relationship to the Lord's work. In verse 1, he asked this question. Look at the end of verse 1 of chapter 9. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Paul says, Do you know what my work is? You are my work. You, the Corinthians, you are the work. You are the product of my labor, my workmanship. The very existence of this church in Corinth was due to the fact that this apostle was doing the Lord's work. So, right away this morning, one of the things we should ask ourselves is where am I and where are you in relation to doing gospel work? At Heather Hills and your involvement here in this place if if you and I understand that we are not simply called to come and sit down on a Sunday morning and learn that's not the extent of our calling We're, we're not just to sit and learn we're to grow and go and we're to feed and then we're to go out and fish right fish for men Then how are we doing this morning in this idea of doing the Lord's work? The Corinthians themselves were the product of the work of the Lord through God's servant, Paul. Now, one of the things that Paul wasn't confused about, however, was that even though Paul's doing this work and he's going all over the world doing this kind of work, giving the gospel out and starting churches and all this kind of stuff, he was under no illusions that it was his work. Paul's very clear That it's the Lord's work. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 for just a second. Back to the left a few more pages. You'll remember there was a problem in Corinth. Actually, there were a lot of problems in Corinth, weren't there? But one of the problems we saw early on in Corinth was that they were stuck on personalities. There was all this divisiveness, all this factions uh, between the Corinthians. And somebody was saying, I am of Apollos, right? He's the man. And somebody else would say, Oh, no, 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 I prefer Paul. He's the apostle. You know, he's the guy. And somebody else would say, hey, Don't forget Cephas. You know, don't forget Peter. You know, he's the big dog. And it was all very childish. It was all very middle schoolish, right? It was immature discussion. Do you remember how Paul addressed this in chapter 3 and verse 5? He says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Notice he doesn't say, who? He doesn't say, who are we? He says, what are we? The issue is not who. The issue is what. And friends, all you got to do is look around. Open your eyes, look around, get on social media, look around. As a world, we are obsessed with who. What we should be obsessed with is what. What is Apollos? What is Paul? And how does he answer it? Look at the text. What are we? Servants. Through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Paul saying the only reason that I did what I did in coming to Corinth and all the other cities that I go to is because the Lord assigned me a task. He gave me a job, and I'm doing my job. He goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 3, I got the job of planting. Apollos got the job of watering. But the point is, what? I planted, Apollos watered, but what was the point? God is the one who did what? Who gave the growth. God is the one who gave the growth. John Calvin said in his institutes that the key to usefulness in the kingdom of God begins with self-forgetfulness. And if your ministry in your local church is all about being seen and being the guy or the gal, We've got to reorient our sights. We've got to reorient our hearts. The fact that we are servants and we're doing the Lord's work. So God assigns the task, right? Verse 3. God gave the growth, verse 6. And even if you look down at verse 8, God is the one who also gives the rewards, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages or his reward according to his labor. You and I are going to get a reward for the service we do for Jesus Christ. Our wages, Paul calls it, for being a faithful laborer. Not, it doesn't say a successful laborer, right? It doesn't say, okay, if you went out and started 15 churches, then you get the gold crown. If you go out and start five churches, you get the bronze crown. He doesn't talk like that. God's rewards are not given on the basis of evident success or fruit bearing. They're given on the basis of faithfulness. He gives the task. He makes it grow. He gives the rewards. It's all the Lord's work. Do you see that? That's something we can learn from the letters of Paul about what he's up to. Now, secondly, let's ask a second question. Who does the work? Who does this work? And and I want you to notice here that there's a variety of people that God uses to carry out the work. Paul understands this. Uh, Next Sunday, as we finish up the letter in 1 Corinthians, we're going to notice the impact of a whole family in verse 15. Uh, We'll hear about Stephanus. We'll hear about Fortunatus. We'll hear about Achaicus in verse 17. What did they look like? We don't know. But we know what they did. That's the important thing. Not who they were, but what they did. Paul says in verse 18, They refreshed my spirit. That's what these people did. Verse 12 is kind of interesting. Paul's writing about Apollos there. He says, I strongly urged him to visit you. Now, if you remember what we just read in chapter 3 about, you know, I am of Apollos, I am of Paul, I am of Peter, you know, all of that mess. Paul knew all that territorialism that was going on in the church at Corinth. He knew that there is a faction of people who favored Apollos. If he was looking out for himself, right, if Paul was concerned about the who selfishly, he'd make sure Apollos never went back to Corinth, right? Don't bolster his group. Don't give them any strong priority. But Paul wasn't concerned about his planting or Apollos' watering. He was concerned about the Corinthians growing. And so he wanted Apollos to come back and water some more because Apollos was good at that. And then there's Timothy, verses 11 and 12. Paul basically tells the Corinthians, I can't wait for Timothy to get there, and here's how I want you to treat Timothy. Now, Timothy was very different from Apollos, at least from our reading of the New Testament, right? Apollos seemed to be one of those guys who had a larger-than-life personality, right? He was a big, bold, public speaker. He had skills. And Timothy, on the other hand appears to be naturally kind of timid, fearful, maybe a little shy. That's why Paul says things like, see that you put him at ease among you. Well, why would he need to tell him that? Timothy was probably physically frail as well. Remember how Paul encourages him in his letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 5.23, to take a little wine For his stomach ailments. Seems like maybe Timothy had a a sickliness maybe about him. Um, And remember how Paul encouraged him in 1 Timothy 4.12. You guys know this verse. Let no one despise you for your youth. Timothy so Timothy was a, a younger man than maybe the, the average minister of his day. And, and Paul feared that, you know, maybe Timothy would, would be a little hesitant to stand up and, and serve strongly and faithfully because of his age, because of his youthfulness. And one of the reasons people don't get engaged in the Lord's work is because they're fearful. Can you imagine Timothy walking into the church at Corinth? thinking about all the rest of this letter that we've studied, knowing all the problems that were there. Can you imagine Timothy, a younger guy, maybe a frail guy, maybe a little bit of a nervous or fearful guy, walking into this church, this church? I mean, there were intimidating characters in Corinth, right? There were some loud mouths There were some some people who thought they knew the right way ministry ought to be run. And it was probably scary for Timothy to walk into that and, and meet this group. After all, I mean, think of what this group had done to his mentor, the Apostle Paul, the way they had treated him. They'd given him a pretty hard time. They'd called into question his apostleship. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, In 1 Thessalonians 5.13, it's interesting. He encourages the, the Thessalonians in regard to their leaders. He says this, to esteem them very highly in love. Esteem your leaders very highly in love. Why? Because they're amazing, because they got a wicked set of skills, because they're like you know, type A, Mr. Charismatic? No, the text says, First Thessalonians 5.13, esteem them very highly and love because of their work. You know, when Paul is commending Timothy to the Corinthians, he doesn't say, when Timothy gets there, guys, put him at ease because he's a great guy. You'll really like him. He doesn't say, put Timothy at ease because he is hilarious. Wait till you get his sense of humor. You'll be rolling. He doesn't say, hey, hey, gang, put Timothy at ease. He is one of the sweetest, nicest people you've ever met. Paul says, put him at ease because he's doing the work of the Lord. That's the issue. You know, the truth is, whether it's Apollos or Timothy or Paul or Brian or Trey or Greg or any of our leaders here in the church, all Christian leaders like being liked. But ultimately, it doesn't matter whether you like someone or not. Whether what matters is whether they're doing the word, the Lord's work or not. And you'll like some people more than you like other people. And you'll be drawn, some people will be drawn more to the planters like Paul. Some people will be drawn more to the waterers like Apollos. And some will be drawn to those historic, you know, uh, aged leaders like Peter. And people are drawn to all kinds of personalities for different reasons. Some people might be drawn to the more quiet, introspective Timothy doesn't make a bit of difference what matters is the work of the lord getting done and paul was a team player man if you don't see this in his letters you don't know paul i mean read read romans 16 read the last chapter of romans 16 sometime and you'll see this amazing list of co-workers 24 names that paul wants to say These are the good guys. These are the ones who have helped me. These are the ones doing the work of the Lord. They didn't all look the same. They didn't all act the same. They weren't all gifted the same. They weren't all liked the same. But they were all vital in the work of the Lord. In the same way as you and I look around this auditorium this morning and you see all the variety of people, all kinds of different people, That God is using to do his work, to grow his people. Each one is necessary. We all have a work to do for the Lord. Read read other Paul's letters. Read Philippians. He's talking about Epaphroditus. Great guy. Read 2 Timothy 4. He brings up John Mark again. Remember John Mark? They had a little party in the ways earlier, right? But at 2 Timothy 4, he says, John Mark, I need him. He's a good guy. Check out his letter to Philemon, writing about his runaway slave, Onesimus, commending Onesimus as a faithful worker. He's useful to the Lord. He's useful to me, Paul says. God uses a variety of people to do the work of the Lord. He uses you to do the work of the Lord. Do you, know why we, do you know why we spend time investing in training leadership in the church? It's not just so we have more people to do work. We invest in leadership so that leaders can, in the church can help equip all of you. And engage all of you in the gifts that God has given you. And help you find a place to serve in God's church. Everyone is necessary. Every part of the body. Remember that teaching? 1 Corinthians 12. Every member of the body is essential. Third question. Let's ask the text. Where is the work done? Did you notice there's different locations in uh, in First Corinthians 16 in our text here, five to twelve? He talks about Ephesus in here. He talks about Macedonia, an area of the country. He, he, he talks about Corinth, obviously. He talks to, to the Corinthians about maybe staying um, with them, uh, maybe going. Uh, he doesn't want to come for just a little while. He wants to stay for a longer while. So he can really, you know, connect and minister with them. So they can partner with him and his ministry. But wherever he is, Paul knows he's supposed to be doing the work of the Lord. Wherever he is. He didn't, Paul, this is not Paul. Paul didn't choose places for ministry to suit his own convenience or his own pleasure. He's like, he's not like, I don't think I want to work in Michigan. You know? Have you seen the winters in Michigan? It's cold. Right? And he's not like, nah, no, nah, I don't think I want to be in Florida. It's too hot in the summer there. Mmm, it's a scorcher. I don't think Florida's for me. No, 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 I don't want to be in New England. It's hard there. Oh, man. It's hard to work for the Lord out there. People are really cold out there to the Lord. It's too hard. W- where would you like to be, Paul? Where, where, where do you think you need to do the work of the Lord? Well, just figure out where you want to be, Paul. We'll, we'll find you the ideal spot to serve the Lord. You go back to Acts chapter 14 and ask yourself if Paul was looking for ideal type places of ministry. It comes out of Iconium. People are after him, Acts 14.5. An attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. How's it going in Iconium, Paul? Not so well. Where are you going next? Let's go to Lystra and Derby. All right, let's go to Lystra and Derby. They go to Lystra and Derby, Acts 14.19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. Brothers and sisters, Paul was not, I mean, he's the, he was the apostle, right? Big dog. Wrote most of the New Testament. Highly esteemed, highly educated, highly skilled, highly used. But Paul's not sitting on a beach. In a little villa on the Mediterranean, sipping a cold drink and laughing it up with all his good boys. He's not. Paul's in the thick of the battle. He welcomed the challenges, he welcomed the opposition. He accepted them not as obstacles to be avoided, but as great privileges. And you have this amazing statement in our text in verse 9 that uh, I think Pastor Greg re, uh, referred to earlier that, that Paul was, was, was seeing that there was a wide door for effective work that had opened to him where he was in Ephesus. And, and don't miss the end of the verse. There are many adversaries. There's Great opportunity, and there's great opposition. Brothers and sisters, we need to put out of our heads the type of thinking that says, if we're just in the right place, everything will go smoothly. That is not a biblical notion. Paul would say, Ephesus, right now, perfect. Much opportunity, much opposition. I mean, think about this logically, right? Do we as Christians think that we can actually go and invade the territory of the devil with the gospel and not face opposition? Do we really believe that? But I will tell you, you can live in a very cozy, comfortable, evangelical Christianity and never know a bit of opposition. It exists. You can get your family to where there's no opposition. You can silence your witness so well in your office that nobody will ever have anything bad to say about you. And you might think that because everybody likes you and everybody thinks you're great, that you're being really effective for the gospel. (laughs) When in fact, you might be ineffective and useless. And I would be too. Paul says a wide door of opportunity and opposition. Speaking of Ephesus... If you have your Bible open to Acts still, take a quick look at Acts 19, because Ephesus is described there. Ephesus had this elaborate system of organized religion. They had this temple there called the Temple of Artemis, or the Temple to Diana, and it's sponsored, as a part of the worship, prostitution. Like, prostitution was part of what you did when you went to church, Sexual immorality was a part of their worship. So if you lived in Ephesus and you were a religious person, guess what? You got to do all those things along with it. And Paul comes into town and says, No. Nope. He demonstrates the power of the gospel in his teaching, in his daily debates. In the hall of Tyrannus, the Bible says, about the kingdom of God, Acts 19, verse 9. You want to build a new church? Do you think you're going to hear this from any church building, church growth book? Here's what you do. Spend two years, every afternoon, go to a public building and just argue with people about the reality of who Jesus is and why he came and what he can do for them. Just do that. Argue with people for two hours every afternoon for two years but brothers and sisters as a result of that all kinds of things happened in Ephesus there were some Jewish exorcists that are described in verse 13 and 14 he had to deal with them there's some occultic practices in verses 17 to 19 there's this big bonfire that takes place after some of the people learned the truth that Paul's been proclaiming to them and they burn all their occultic scrolls, it'd be like the palm readers, you know, getting converted and taking all their crystal balls and all their stuff and all their tarot cards and throwing them on a fire and burning them. This would happen when Paul brought the gospel to Ephesus. There were these little silversmiths in Ephesus under the control of this guy named Demetrius down in verse 24. He had this great thing going. He had this, this, these little silver boobs that were directly connected with all this prostitution worship stuff going on at the temple of Artemis. It's perfect, right? You, you can be religious. You can do what you want with, with whoever you want, any you want. People love that kind of religion. They love it. A religious experience with no rules. Sign me up for that. Love it. In comes the Apostle Paul. Sorry, this is bogus. Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross for your sins and has commanded everybody to repent. And he's going to judge the world. And guess what happened? People started to believe the gospel. The impact began to be felt. And Demetrius and his boys have to get together and have a meeting because if they don't shut Paul up, this whole business is going up in flames, literally. Now let me ask you a question. What was the strategy that led to the burning of all that occultic material, the dramatic impact on the the economy and the commerce of the city of Ephesus? You know, we're coming into another election season, have you noticed? Heather Hills, it was not a political campaign to close down the immoral temple at Artemis. It wasn't a boycott against all the sorcerers in the city of Ephesus. It was the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to get godly people into office and try to get godly laws passed and participate in the political system. I'm not saying that. But I am saying this. We will never, by means of political manipulation or ideology or boycotting, we will never see the sorcerers and sexual gods and goddesses in Indianapolis brought to destruction. Only one way by the power of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. I hope you believe that. When the church gives up on that message, it's forced to find another message. And many churches, unfortunately, have found another message. Where do you do the work of the Lord? Paul always finds an ideal spot, right? (laughs) Yeah, guys. Uh, I'm going to stay longer at Ephesus. Ephesus. Ephesus is full of paganism, idolatry, occultism, demons, superstition, sexual immorality, religious bigotry. Do you think Paul wanted to live in some cozy little establishment somewhere? Paganism, idolatry, the occult, superstition, sexual immorality. Look around this city, brothers and sisters. Welcome to Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up. We're going to sing a song here to close in just a second. As they're coming, let's think about some, some applications from the sermon this morning, and then you continue that in your ABF classes. The work is the Lord's work. The great theologian uh, Kuiper wrote this. You probably heard this before. There is not a single inch over which Jesus Christ does not say, Mine. Mine. So, brothers and sisters, our home, our employment, our vacation, our friendships, our college, our hobbies, our social circle. Everything is claimed by him and may be dedicated to him. Whatever we do, word, deed, everything, we do for him. Second, God uses a variety of people to do his work. We saw some leaders here. We'll see other people next week. But friends, If God can use a variety of people to do his work, God can use you. He plans to use you. It won't be the same for all of us, but all of us have a role to play. All of us have an assignment to fulfill. Are you fulfilling that? Do you know what God wants you to do, and are you doing it? Praise God! Or are you sitting on the sidelines letting... Everybody else do all the work. It doesn't matter if you're young or old, doesn't matter if you're bold or timid? Does't matter if you're well-educated or simple? Does't matter if you're popular or if you're awkward? Every member of the body is essential to God and should be essential to you and to me. everyone. If you're chomping at the bit, by the way, if you're sitting in your seat there and you're chomping at the bit to do something for the Lord and you don't know where to start, come and talk to me after the service. Okay? Everybody can do something to advance the Lord's work here and everywhere that God puts you. Third, where do we do the work? Do the work in the place he puts you. Don't entertain the idea in your mind that there's this mystical, ideal place to serve God somewhere. There isn't. Are you thinking about leaving your home because your marriage isn't ideal? Are are you thinking about changing jobs because your boss isn't ideal? Are you thinking about leaving your church because your church isn't ideal? Ideal? Brothers and sisters, there is no ideal place to serve God except the place where he's put you. So be faithful there. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it to the glory of God there. Spread the gospel to every person there. And watch him do his work. It's his work. Watch him do it. Sure, there will be opposition. Expect it. He'll help you with that. We'll help you with that. But our work is not finished until he calls us home or until he comes back to get us. And even then, we've got more work to do, don't we, in heaven? serving our Lord for all eternity. Well, I hope these travel plans this morning of the Apostle Paul have at least helped us think a little bit about some of the bigger ideas about what it means to do the work of the Lord. And I hope that you'll be challenged to make those adjustments in your life to be a little bolder witness for the Lord if you need to be. Speak up instead of being silent. Uh, Go to that person that you know needs to hear what you have. Don't keep it from them. Share it. Take the risk. Watch God do a work that will blow you away.